John, you have anything to add before we, we wrap up and say goodbye? <laughs> you always do this to me. And I'm like, no. No, no okay. I don't. Well, well, stop. <laughs> well then, then, then we'll back it up. It's been really great having you on the podcast, Frank. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. This is Nat Turney with my brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Welcome back to the podcast. This is not church. Uh, we are joined today by our guest, Frank Schaefer. Uh, we are super excited to have a convo with him. Um, and I just said the word convo, John, like that's a thing. Like, like people say that convo. Yeah, they do, but maybe not for the reasons you want them to say it. I don't know. It seemed less cool. The second it came out of my mouth, I wanted to like pull it back. <laughs> At least you didn't say convoy. Well, no, we're not having one of those. (laughs) That brings a whole whole different level. (laughs) It's a whole different thing, and we're not going there, man. But anyway, let me give you a quick rundown on Frank, and then we will jump head first, feet first, or we'll do like the Nesty plunge into, uh, uh, we just dated ourselves, John. Yes, There's going to be a whole lot of people here who don't get the Nesty plunge reference, but that's okay. Anyway, let's do it. Uh, Frank is a blogger on Huffington Post and Pathios. Uh, He was the first HuffPost, uh, I'm sorry, one of the first HuffPost bloggers and has a significant platform worldwide. His uh, three summit biographical novels about growing up in a fundamentalist mission, Portofino, Zermatt and Saving Grandma have a worldwide following and have been translated into nine languages. And coincidentally, I probably mispronounced at least two of those. Um, <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winner and novelist Jane Smiley, writing in the Washington Post, says this of Frank's books, Crazy for God and Sex, uh, Mom and God. He says, Schaefer's memoirs have a way of winning a reader's friendship. Schaefer is a good memoirist, smart, and often laugh out loud funny. Frank seems to have been born irreverent, but his memoirs have a serious purpose, and that is to expose the insanity and the corruption of what has become a powerful and frightening force in American politics. Frank has been straightforward and entertaining in his campaign to right the political wrongs he regrets committing in the 70s and 80s. As someone who has made redemption in his work, he has, in fact, shown amazing grace. So, with all of that being said, welcome, Frank Schaefer, to the This Is Not Church podcast, man. How are you doing, bud? Thank you, Matt, and thank you, John, for having me. Good. All right. Well, let's uh, uh, let's jump in. Our, our sort of typical opening salvo of a question is if is just to ask people to give us kind of a a snapshot of their religious upbringing, maybe their maybe some of their faith journey, if if you feel comfortable sharing that. Sure. Well, you know, as a writer of both fiction and nonfiction, the first thing to say is that I've drawn heavily on my background for the, I don't know what it is, 12, 13, 14 books that I've written. The novels are are loosely based on my childhood in Switzerland. You mentioned Portofino, Saving Grandma Zermatt. And by the way, you said all those titles correctly. Woohoo! Hey, that's a hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> I pronounced Grandma correctly. I was concerned about yeah, that. Yeah, are, Saving Grandma. You know, you even got that right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was born in 1952. I'll be 70 in the summer of 2022. And during that journey, uh, a a couple of things stand out. First of all, when I was born, I was born to a family of very humble, very impoverished American evangelical fundamentalist missionaries by the name of Francis Nita Schaefer, who at that time were in a little chalet in Switzerland. 
having broken with their U.S. mission board and denomination, and this is the 1950s, started their own little missionary outfit called Labrie, L-A-B-R-I, which in French means the shelter. You know, this was a a faith work, a genuine faith work, not part of the big-time American industrial religious scam scene, which I got very familiar with many years later. But at that time, you know, my dad, Francis Schaeffer, who later became a famous evangelical author and leader, didn't have a secretary, worked at the side of his bed in a rocking chair, worked on a tea tray doing his Bible studies and sermon preparation. We did not have a car. We probably ate meat once a week. The rest of the time it was casseroles, salads, stuff we grew in our garden. Um, my mom and dad never asked for money. People would send gifts from our so-called praying family. Once in a while, they'd get a newsletter. The the work really started because my sister Priscilla was at the University of Lausanne, again in the 1950s, and started to bring some friends home for the weekend, kind of to reach out and evangelize them, and partly social. Happened to meet her husband, my very beloved uh, brother-in-law, John Sandry, that way. And it was a very low-key business. Uh, you know, when the house was full, I'd be stepping over sleeping bags on the way to the kitchen at night if I wanted to get a glass of milk or a snack. Um, there was no girls or boys dormitory. People just sort of crashed wherever they could. Mom and dad would do Bible studies and discussions. But then an interesting thing happened. Um, my father, who had grown up in Philadelphia, uh, at working class parents, um, had moved to the Europe, not particularly culturally savvy, began to go to art museums, study philosophy. And as he puts it, I learned a lot more from the students' questions than anything I was able to tell them in the way of answers in those days. And he started really getting into the kind of things that the beat generation at that point, who were the kind of precursor to the hippies, were thinking about. And so, you know, if you had wandered into Labrie in, say, 1960, Eight. By that time, there would have been seven chalets. It had grown. There would be evangelical celebrities like Billy Graham coming by, trying to figure out what it was Francis Schaeffer was doing differently with these young people to have such a good result in the number of converts and others. Really, what Dad was doing was speaking the language of the 20th century. So you might have heard a lecture on Bob Dylan's lyrics. You might have come to a film festival in our chapel and wandered up the road to go to a number of Fellini or Bergman movies, come back to Libri and discuss them. The last thing you would have done at the time would be to say, hey, this is some sort of right-wing fundamentalist evangelical organization. Mixed race, uh, no open hostility to gay people coming. Uh, The gospel was being preached, Bible studies given, but with this big mix of intellectual interest and art at the same time. (coughs) Fast forward to... Uh, 1970. By this point, I've gotten my girlfriend, Jeannie, who then is, we're 17 and 18. She's pregnant. We're going to get married uh, a couple months later. Uh, fortunately, we're in love. 52 years later, we're still together, by the way, and um, have five grandchildren as well as three kids. But at that point, I was sort of becoming, I guess I could put it this way, and it'll be familiar to you guys because you know about evangelicals, the nepotistic sidekick to my dad. And I often tell people, if you want to understand how big time evangelicalism works, you got to, you you have to study North Korea or maybe the British Royal family. It's all nepotism. So it was nothing unusual for people to be saying, Oh, Frank Schaefer is a good natural speaker. The mantle will pass. Are you going to be following in your dad's footsteps? And in that environment, it didn't seem weird. Um, 
Then fast forward a little bit to a film series I made with dad called How Should We Then Live that had a book counterpart and another one that I made with dad and Dr. Sierra Coop. By that point, I'm interested in filmmaking. I'm directing and producing these series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And by the time those two series were out and we had toured the U.S. with a seminar tour and the books had become bestsellers, literally millions of evangelicals in churches and schools and high schools and homeschools and all the rest were renting the movies in those days in 16 millimeter and then eventually on VHS cassette and so forth and so on. And really, whatever happened to the human race being an anti-abortion pro-life statement in a number of episodes is charted by, I guess, most historians of American religion and politics as the kind of foundational document or move of, of what had been rather non-political white evangelicals in the U.S. to a very militant politics that eventually resulted in the Tea Party, and then if you fast forward from that to the election of Donald Trump. So, you know, as you look at, for instance, Trump's election, you can take away Vladimir Putin and the Russians, you can take away the Roman Catholic vote, you can take away old school Republicans, but what you cannot take away and still have him president is the 83% of the white evangelicals who voted for him. And that 83%, back when we hit the scene in the 1970s, was voting about 50-50 Democratic and Republican. In fact, the knock on them was they were totally apathetic, non-political. Sure, there was a right-wing fringe, you know, the John Birch Society and so forth, anti-communism. But in general, your local evangelical was all about getting you saved and going to the local church and arguing about infant baptism or whatever it may be. They were not about hard-nosed, brass-knuckle, in-your-face, knock-you-down, hate-you politics. Sadly, my family, the Schaefer clan, and me personally, totally culpable because, uh, you know, I didn't know better at the time. I myself had been rather indoctrinated, but I did at one point. And I stayed in it longer than I should have because of the money. I wanted to earn, a, have a living. I stayed in it because of access to power. And by the time I was in my mid-20s and early 30s, I was knocking around with people like Jack Kemp, who was a vice presidential candidate and a congressman, Bob Dole. We knew the Bush family. My parents were staying in the Ford White House. And by that point, the journey from this little evangelical mission that I grew up in to big-time American evangelical, I guess you could call it crime, <laughs> because it was a fundraising scam in so many ways, not us personally, but many people we were involved with, had completely taken place. So check me out in, in the late 1980s, 70s and early 1980s. You'll find me on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson several, six or seven times. Dr. Dobson printed a special edition of a book I wrote called A Time for, Ang Time for Anger, kind of an evangelical screed. It distributed 250,000 copies, believe it or not, in about two weeks as a fundraising fulfillment early in his focus on the family days. So that's where I came from. And then if you fast forward a little further, and we can get into this in the discussion, so you have time for more questions, but you just pull, you punch the red button here. <laughs> that's right. It's all good, man. <laughs> And ask me for a little background. Well, it's complicated. Uh, you yeah. know, but if you fast forward a little more, you'll find that I'm out of the evangelical scene entirely. Uh, when the New York Times did an article about my departure related to my memoir, Crazy for God, they called me a traitorous prince mm -hmm. from an evangelical royal family 
They called us evangelical royalty, and they sort of made the analogy with the prince who would abdicate his post because I was clearly on the way. And I didn't leave because I was screwing around with somebody I was not married to. I did not leave because I had stolen money. So that may surprise people because, you know, we know why most of them get out. I left because I was, and I pardon the language here, but I had come to understand the fact that by being an evangelical leader myself, I was being groomed to be an asshole by divine right. Yep. In other words, this was the fast track to watching my marriage collapse. My wife was now married to this jerk so full of himself. I hated the work I was doing because I didn't like the people I was with. After all, I'm a movie maker and an artist at heart. And here I'm with people who don't even, you know, don't have any clue about the films I like. You know, they hate gay people. A lot of them are racist and segregationists like Jerry Falwell. One last thing. Folks sometimes ask me, well, you know, what started the process of you getting out? And they're expecting some sort of secular new atheist vision or, you know, that I just, I don't know what. What surprises a lot of people is when I tell them, look, my road out of evangelicalism was comparing the big time flakes that I was working with, like Robertson, Franklin Graham, all these other people, Ralph Reed and others, to this humble, sincere, genuine mission I grew up in. In other words, my question started because I realized I'd become part of a criminal enterprise. I really had. It's like a kid who goes, you know, so idealistic at the beginning of his life in Germany in the 1920s. He joins this little youth movement, wakes up one morning and realizes he's joined Hitler Youth. It's not what I signed up for. So I started my journey out. And for the last 35 years, you know, you mentioned I'd been one of the first bloggers on HuffPost and so forth. And my, my memoirs like Crazy Forgot and other things. Um, you know, that all began not because of some enlightenment vision of secularism or that I became an atheist or whatever. I mean, as my own faith journey went ahead, I did change a lot of views, but it started because I was comparing favorably the humility and the kindness, the compassion, the Christ-like behavior of my parents and their mission and the first people we worked with to where I was ending up. And I realized that this really called everything into question and that you know, when people talk about evangelicals or Christian work, they, what they had in mind was not my dad sitting at the edge of his bed working on a, in a rocking chair on a, on a little tea tray. They were thinking about the, the jet I was in that Jerry Falwell had lent me to fly around the country when I was speaking with my own pilot. That's what they were picturing. And, and it was so far from my beginnings that I started asking questions. And now I'll shut the fuck up and let you. <laughs> First of all, you don't have to. So uh, please, please understand. John and I uh, see our role here as facilitators, nothing more. So man, if you're in a, if you're on a roll, man, be on a roll and you never have to apologize for your language here either. So sometimes we say fuck and it's okay. Um, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm telling you what, brother, I, I'm already fascinated. Um, I know it. So at some point you did convert or chrismate, did you not, into the Orthodox Church? Yes, I did. And you know, I don't regret that a bit. In fact, I, I, I look back on the experience of finding a spirituality outside of, of, of my evangelical background as really a good thing for me, because let's just start with this. It showed me that there were sincere Christians out there and people who wanted to be spiritual in a totally different way than I had been brought up to believe. Look, backtrack to when I was a little boy in our mission. We, my dad would be going to Milan, Italy every week to give Bible studies to unsaved Roman Catholics. He didn't mean mm. by that lapsed Roman Catholics. He meant 
anybody baptized as a Roman Catholic is not a Christian. Right. You know, so uh, your listeners may not understand something. The dividing line in our family wasn't between Christians and non-Christians. It was our version of saved or nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody else was either a cult or a heathen. And that included Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and you name it. Even most other Protestant denominations were not Calvinistic enough or not Reformed enough. And then of those, there were people we didn't like. And, you know, I joked in one of my novels, Portofino, that we eventually got back to a place where our little church had split so many times that it came down to me and my three sisters. And I wasn't so sure about Susan. (laughs) <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's yeah. funny, but if you look at the history of all these little independent churches, how many splits do they go through? So, oh man, yeah. You know, the, the very fact that I became part of a formal ancient body of Christians. Okay, so that's truth issues is not what I'm talking about here. Whether you believe anything they believe, I'm just talking about the salutary effect on my soul of realizing that the earth didn't swallow me. When I went into a community where you make the sign of the cross, you kiss an icon, you light a candle, and that these traditions actually predate what we call the Bible, because the canon of the Bible took about 300 years to come together, and the traditions of the of the Greek Orthodox Church in its most ancient form, you know, is a first century liturgy. So it was very helpful to me to realize, you know, I've been brought up on the idea that if it's not in the Bible, it can't be true. Not only that. You know, not only is evolution not true or global warming because it's not in the Bible, but nothing can be true even in terms of faith traditions uh, that that isn't in the Bible. So it was very healthy for me. And of course, I, uh, the other thing is people, you know, asked me at the time, I remember the new atheist writer, philosopher, commentator, Christopher Hitchens once called me after he had read Crazy for God, and he really liked it. And he finished the book and he said, yeah, but why at the end of the book don't you just clearly declare yourself an atheist and say you're one of us? And of course, I was getting the same question from more sympathetic, what I'd call liberal evangelicals, saying, hey, you know, your, your definition of faith at the end of this book is not clear enough for us. Why can't you just come right out and say, I'm still a Christian? And so I, I wrote a little book that kind of expresses a better view of where I'm at now than that kind of mid-passage of my journey out of evangelicalism, which took me into the Greek Orthodox Church, and that's called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And it's deliberately confusing because what I really believe in now is uncertainty and paradox. And I'll just give an example. I pray, but I don't know whether God exists or not. And most of the time, I think he or she or it doesn't. So somebody would look at me and say, well, then, you know, why do you bother? And I I can look you right in the eye, and I'm not trying to be a smartass here and say, well, that's how my mom raised me. And we're talking about psychology here. That's like asking me, why are you afraid of heights? Because I grew up in the Swiss Alps, and we hiked, and I didn't like looking over cliffs, and I knew people who were killed on mountain climbs. So that's just me. That's where I come from. The thing is, in the old evangelical mindset, it was all about correct belief. No one admitted, I'm doing this because it makes me feel good. I'm doing this because my mom raised me this way. I'm doing this because I have a vitriolic temper and I had to work on it. I'm doing this because of this, that, and the other. There was always this kind of bigger reason, like, oh, I have my reasons. And that was my argument with Chris Hitchens. And that was, I said to him, look, don't you have room for just psychological weirdness? Don't you have room for the fact that I was raised that way? So for me, this is already way out on a limb to even question these things. Why have I got to take that next step and pretend that I've had certainty in your system of belief when when, when, when I've kind of abandoned that principle altogether? So 
that step into the Greek Orthodox Church for me is one that's lasted. I still go once in a while. I still enjoy the liturgies. I still enjoy the services. Do I believe the official theology? No. But then again, when I go to a Shakespeare play, I don't like it in modern English. I want the original. Do I believe that somehow that's an accurate history? No, it's a drama, but I like it. You got a problem with that? In other words, <laughs> that's just me. So, so I think that when you come from an evangelical background, you always approach anything someone says, whether it's about marriage or sex or relationships or religion or God, as if it's somehow a declaration of correct faith. Yeah. 99% of what I say these days is totally different. And I, I'm, I'm not being mamby-pamby about this. It's, I put it differently. You know, I should, you just start every sentence, at least in my own head is, hey, it seems to me. Yeah. Or exactly. this is how I am. Not like, hey, this is it. So, you know, that's where Chris and I parted company. He liked the book. I wrote Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. It's had a lot of play all over the world. A lot of people have found themselves in that book in the sense that they, they may agree or disagree with what I'm saying, but they, they understand that step in a journey where it just says, hey, listen, I am glad to accept paradox. And you know, people tend to think this kind of amorphous, imprecise vision of spirituality is peculiar to a, re- a religion. But of course it's not, because if you just take two things that don't seem related, but they are, and that is, you know, quantum physics of the kind they study at CERN and Geneva and the Hadron Collider, where, you know, they're looking for particles they don't even know exist on a faith basis that there must be something smaller. And sometimes they think they find them. Or if you take the definition of the word love uh, love is real enough. It's as real as a heart attack. You can study, uh, you know, oxytocin and all the hormonal changes in our bodies. It's real. Even dogs can feel this. We can study that. And yet if you define it, you know, and again, I'm not trying to be clever here, but I've been married 52 years and Jean and I have a lovely relationship. But sometimes love means that after you hate the person you love, you go away for a day and come back and say, you're sorry. Now, is that what we mean by love? I thought it was something mushy and sweet. No, sometimes it's very, very tough. And I mean, demanding an apology. Well, similarly, faith to me is the same. It has nothing to do with certainty of belief. It's a set of behaviors. And it's the way you embrace life. So, you know, I pray for my grandchildren in the morning. Why do I do that? Because I love them. Okay, is it logical or not? I don't know. But how how would you... Okay, so then, you know, I'm talking to Chris Hitchens here. Okay, Chris, smartass, how do you express <laughs> love for people in your life in a way that means something that connects with how you grew up and who you are at your most profound level? For me, it's prayer. You want me to change that? Okay, then basically you're just telling me I don't like you because that's who right. I am. That's yeah. like the color of my skin, tough. That's me. So... I I, uh, I I have a big quibble with people who want faith journeys or atheist journeys to be a series of declarative certainties rather than just saying, hey, look, the more I learned, the less I knew. That's who I am. And I, I, I want to admit that fact that most of what, what I believe or say I believe is really just an after-the-fact justification of how I feel anyway. And that's yeah. it's like based yeah. in art. Art history bugs me because people are giving all these reasons why the guy painted. I've been a painter. I am a painter. And I happen to know that very few artists in history ever look at a canvas and say, now what I want to do today is say this. They just paint something and later the art historian figures out what it's saying. And I think same, I think the same goes for most of our stuff. Most of us are just reacting and acting. And then later we try to give a reason for it to make it look so, you know, that we're not just so nutty. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, it, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, and what you're anymore, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now and I've been raised in the same, sounds like the same kinds of evangelical churches you were raised in. And what, what has been, what, what pushed me out of all of that was that, was that demand for certainty, you know, that, that, that insistence upon some, you know, some concrete set of beliefs and doctrines and any more, man, even if I have people in my life that I agree with, if they're dogmatic about it, I want to go tell them to fuck themselves. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's like, I might even, I might even be sympathetic to what you're saying, but my gosh, I mean, you, you come across as so certain and so dogmatic. There's not an ounce of humility in it. And I like what you said. I, I found myself saying this very, very often. It seems to me the way, or, or, or even couching it in terms of like where I am right now. Um, this is, this is the way I see it now. Um, and leaving room that that could change and mo- not, not that it could change. It likely will change. My only, you know, I have issues with any, any organized institution, you know, any religion, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably more closely aligned with orthodox theology than anything that resembles evangelicalism anyway. But I, you know, I have issues with their structure and their hierarchy oh, and, I do their, too. and their exclusivity me. and their, you know, the way that they, you know, they still marginalize and sideline women. And the Russian Orthodox Church, by the way, right now is doing a real good job of being a bunch of assholes and um, marrying and couples. I've been tweeting up a storm saying, why aren't, you know, the world religious bodies should throw them out of everything and just totally exclude them. You know, why is anybody still talking to these guys that are going along with Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine? I mean, you know, the sins of organized religion are, are long and varied to the point where Chris Hitchens and people who have tried to catalog them, eventually the books just, just become boring. You know, it, 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 it's hopeless. But, you know, my view is of the kind of radicalization of evangelicalism, but also you could say this about, you know, the kind of certainty that makes the Russian Orthodox Church as corrupt as it is to get in bed with Vladimir Putin attacking innocent people. You know, when when you take that kind of level of I'm right and everybody else is wrong, of course, corruption aside, you know, the way I put it in, in, one, of my, in one of my books, I came up with a line, I said, look, nobody ever bombed an abortion clinic after yelling, but I could be wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Or anything else destructive. I mean, I mean, that is the, but that's the catalyst, isn't it? Well, it's, it's the same as an argument in a, in a relationship. You know, my yeah. worst arguments with my wife don't begin when I say to her, listen, Jeannie, I think X, Y, Z, but I could be wrong. My worst arguments always start when I say, this is what we're doing. Right. <laughs> and right. you yeah. better agree. And damn it, I'm right. And everybody and else is I'm wrong. Right. And, yeah. You know, well, it's, it's, it's weird because we don't, you know, as a people, we, we suck at we suck at history. We, we were terrible with memory, but this is the, you know, and I'm not making comparisons between what Putin is doing and, and Hitler, but the, but the parallels of the church cozying up. Absolutely. Um, and not doing its job and saying, no, how many, how many members of the confessing church were there in, in, in Nazi Germany? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Count them on one hand. I mean, of, the, of Kirill or Kirill, the right. archbishop of Russia, you know, with his, watch that Putin gave him, which then they airbrushed out in other pictures because people started posting it on the internet. I mean, these guys are corrupted to the hilt. So it's like the hierarchy in Germany. You know, so that in in addition to being being betraying their faith, uh, if you take what the faith teaches seriously, it's a sort of a betrayal just of the kind of integrity 
you know, again, it's it's big time religion as a criminal enterprise. And when you get to the top brass of the Russian Orthodox Church, and they themselves are oligarchs who have cash debt. Sure. So they're part of that system. It's absolutely despicable. But then on the other hand, you know, if, if I was not, uh, <laughs> this is, I don't mean it this way, okay with, but if I decided to pursue a kind of a purity of association to the logical conclusion that would mean I could never be part of any human association, you know, I wouldn't be able to pay taxes either. Right. I wouldn't be able to do anything because we don't have any pure human association. So somewhere between demanding absolute purity and then going along with Vladimir Putin, you have to find places to draw a line. Right. Obviously, organized religion has erred, whether it was the, the, the Pope in, in the 1930s with Mussolini or you know, Hitler with, with the Lutherans or Catholic Church, you know, wherever you like, now Putin. And then, of course, in the U.S., uh, you know, Supreme Court justices who interpret religious liberty as the ability of evangelical colleges to fire gay teachers and, and kick students out. Yeah, exactly. You know, so wherever you touch it, religion doesn't do very well when it has political power. And, of course, it, that brings us to the subject of the fact that the religious right in America now that I was part of back in the day were evangelical Christians. They started voting more Republican than Democrat. They had a bee in their bonnet about the life issues. They wanted to roll back feminism. And now it's a white nationalist, Christian nationalist movement with huge racial overtones that is just vitriolic and not even committed to democracy anymore. They're questioning the very form of electoral government we have, saying that their guy won last time, the election was stolen, changing all the laws in state houses to make it harder for people to vote. The Supreme Court's loaded with justices who interpret religious liberty as a kind of a soft theocracy where Christians have special rights in the name of liberty. So, you know, my dad would come back from the grave, who died in 1984, and he would just be stunned by where all this went. I mean, I think knowing my father, he would be sickened by it because this is not, even, even, you know, his pro-life stand was nothing to do with this. I'm not saying we were right. It was a kind of a thinly veiled misogyny, but even so, it wasn't about this. You know, my father and many other evangelicals, well, Reverend Billy Graham, who refused to jump on our bandwagon and would not become part of the pro-life movement on principle. He said he was, he's, he was pro-choice. Weird to think his son Franklin Graham's gone so far to the right. But, you know, these guys, these sort of 1940s and 50s evangelical leaders had their kind of be in their bonnet about anti-communism and so forth. But very few of them were preaching, spewing this kind of nationalist, racially tinned hatred of the other that you now see is just the regular deal when it comes to the kind of support that evangelicals are giving these kind of gun-toting crazy people who... um you know, all about forming militias and defending America when we have a new civil war. And I mean, who who would have thunk this? I mean, like, just crazy where it's all gone. Well, and they're, and they're so in lockstep with with their political ideology that, you know, I, I see what's happening in, you know, with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, you kind of think, okay, well, that, that couldn't happen here. But man, I tell you what, for my money, I bet you if we decided tomorrow that we were going to start in, an invasion of either Mexico or Canada, Eighty-three uh, percent of the, those same eighty-three percent of, of white evangelicals, um, especially males, would be like, "Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do it." And not only that, if, if you threw in what Putin threw in, 
And that is outright lies saying, hey, these guys are all trying to turn your kids into gay kids and it's all about transgender rights. And, you know, this idea that he's standing up for traditional morality has made him popular with people like Franklin Graham, who went to Russia and had his picture taken with Putin. And it's not like we just suddenly learned Putin's a bad guy and mean and murders people two minutes ago. He's done it for 22 years. Yeah. And still evangelicals sucked up to him because he's, you know, he hated gay people and, and used that as part of his thing. So, you know, there's really no excuse for it. It's not like, oh, now we found out he's bad. You know, we would have never supported him. No, no, you supported him when you knew he was already poisoning people in England with Novichok. Yeah, and it's the same kind of deal that, that drove me absolutely crazy. And John's going to jump here in a minute because I'm hijacking the conversation. Sorry, John. Or I'm sorry, the convo. But it was it was the same thing that drove John and I both absolutely crazy during the four years of of that long, dark winter known as, you know, Trump's presidency, where I watched people that I know and love and respect absolutely sell their souls. I mean, absolutely, like, lose all objectivity. These same people who I knew, you know, you know, had criticized past presidents, had no issue criticizing Bush or Reagan or Trump or, or Obama, certainly never had a problem with Obama criticizing him. Um, these same people were suddenly, man, they were lockstep. And even with things that I knew were diametrically opposed to their own philosophies or ideologies. Just excuses after excuses were made. And to the point where some of them I just couldn't talk to anymore. And it sucked, you know, because, you know, it, it created tension and rifts among people. But uh, that to me is the, uh, is, is the, is the greatest tragedy of what, you know, what the evangelical church used to be, uh, versus the political arm that it became. And it's still, you know, still sort of operating that way. That's why John and I, John wrestles with the term Christian. I do too. Um, I certainly have jettisoned the word evangelical. I, I can't. I can't use that word anymore for myself. Um, they've just kind of killed it. The arc of the story is a Shakespearean tragedy. It really is. I mean, just look at my dad's little ministry. They reached out to people. Whether you believe that anybody needed to accept Jesus and not burn in hell, that's a different issue. But in terms of their sincerity and the kindness they showed people, it's exactly what helped. It helped people. It put lives back together. You know, when you look at where it went, it, it's so far afield from that, that even if my loyalty was undividedly, unswervingly, and fervently evangelical, you know, I'd be shouting from the rooftops, if this is where we're going, you know, game over. Uh, who will ever want to be associated with this mess again? You know, what kind of a poster boy have we replaced Jesus with when we have Donald Trump as our, uh, you know, as our icon? It boggles the mind. I mean, you know, the onion 30 years ago never could have come up with anything. This is not it. No, no, you're exactly no. right. This, I mean, it does. Have been, you know, uh, Donald Trump becomes hero to white evangelicals. <laughs> I, like, you know, yeah, right. That would be a really funny. I mean, that's a Saturday, that's an SNL skit from 1980. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's sadly truth is uh, has become way stranger than fiction. But it seems like with the evangelical church, it seems like every step we're like, okay, they can't get worse. They can't, they can't go farther than this. So Trump was, I, it, you know, as we were watching that happen, I was like, okay, this, it can't get worse than this. As we watch his presidency and we watch it un- unravel into this just vitriol of just hate. And, but that, that, it can't, how could it get worse? And then we watched this thing with Putin and we watched these same people who not, 
I mean, I'm not that old, but I can remember where, you know, Russia was the enemy, right? We, they were the worst of the worst. We would never, never find ourselves in an alliance with them in the way that we, that the evangelical church and some right wing conservatives are now putting themselves in. And it's just, I, I don't even have a response as I listen to these people tell us how, you know, as Trump saying he's a genius, that uh, the way he's doing this is, you know, for all intents and purposes, the correct way. I, and then we listen to people on Fox News just kiss ass to this horrific leader that they know is... So it comes to the question, okay, so as Trump, Trump does this whole thing of partnering up with the evangelicals, now we see that Putin is partnering up or, you know, snuggling up to the Russian Orthodox Church. It's like, which was doing this first? Is Putin, like, taking a lesson from Trump? Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, in a way, I don't want to go here. And I don't mean from what you're talking about, where I'm just thinking about. But I think that anybody who understands the kind of evangelical mix understands that the whole movement has been taken over by what you might call the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe. You know, back in the day, people like Billy Graham were the leaders. They had sort of solid mainstream biblical views based on an evangelical background, going back to D.L. Moody and other, and Sankey and these other evangelists, and there was a continuity. You know, the Pentecostal movement came along and essentially just derailed the whole enterprise. And all of a sudden you have, you know, um, PTL Club and Jim and Tammy Baker off on one side. And even then, they're the fringe. You know, you could say, okay, well, I'm only going to be on Jerry Falwell's TV program and preach from his pulpit. but I'm not going to go to the crazies and be on Jim Baker's show. But then all of a sudden, you know, the fringe becomes the main story. And, and, and I think part of this is that Pentecostals have this ability to try to write themselves into modern American history, much as the Mormons did with the golden tablets and all the rest of it. Now, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, America's not in the Bible, so we're going to write ourselves in somehow. And they do this by making prophetic ideas current, like the world's ending, and we've got these signs. And so, of course, you always had this branch of the church like Hal Lindsey writing the late great planet Earth. But again, it was kind of the fringe, you know, that's not what Christianity Today magazine was doing. That's not what they were teaching at Wheaton College. That's not what was happening with Billy Graham crusades. It was sort of not, it was a big selling fringe, but it was still fringe. What's happened is, is that the mainstream has disappeared and the fringe has become the mainstream in the sense that it's all apocalyptic visions. Evangelicals now, I mean, here's an unbelievable one morphing into QAnon. And so it's all, it's off the chart now. Uh, and for evangelicals, okay, who come out of my background, I sort of get it. Your secular commentator, like my friend Rachel Maddow or folks on the MSNBC, um, you know, Joy Reid, who has me on once in a while, she gets it because she's a church girl and came out of that background. But most of the secular commentators haven't a clue of the difference between, say, the Billy Graham wing of evangelicalism and Wheaton College the fundamentalists of Moody Bible Institute, and then on the other hand, the kind of whacked out Pentecostal movement that that basically embraced Donald Trump as a new sign and wonder of the end times where God's now sent us this corrupt leader. And my secular friends are saying, well, how can Christians follow this adulterer three times married, feels up women, credibly accused of rape? And I keep saying to them, well, obviously you don't know your Bible because God raised up Darius. He raised, King David was his favorite and he was an adulterer and a murderer. You only, you only have to answer one question to the signs and wonders of Pentecostal, not 
is this a good guy? But has he been raised up by God for his great mysteries and his great purposes to achieve? And the minute you do that, and he ticks a few boxes like moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So, okay, we've ticked the, the end times box of preparing Israel to receive Jesus. Uh, secular people just won't even understand what I've just said. Um, you know, you tick the box on gays, you tick the box on abortion, you tick the box on feminism, and all of a sudden you realize that, you know, you're no longer seeing him as a political leader. You've updated him to be a biblical figure like Nebuchadnezzar or Darius, whoever it may be, that God's using in real time to bring about biblical prophecy that makes American evangelical Christianity relevant. So it's a, it's a closed loop. And there's no way to argue with it because when it's not about politics anymore, it's not about facts anymore. It's about whether you accept on faith the personhood of Jesus as the Son of God or the resurrection of Jesus or the Virgin Mary or that the world will end in, in this huge apocalyptic nightmare and Jesus will come back and deliver us and there'll be a second coming or the rapture. When you put your political leader into that category, it, it becomes off limits. So, you know, I don't remember anybody back in the day arguing that Gerald Ford should be elected as an emissary from God. I don't remember anybody saying, that, you know, we can't question Ronald Reagan because he's been raised up by God to help hasten the end times. Now, if you look at the people like Paula White and these others that, Oof, yeah. that stood around Trump, that's what they were saying. And if you look at Ralph Reed, who's a very smart boy, and I got into politics because of me and my dad, and I used to know him, he doesn't believe any of that shit, but he knows how to use it. Yeah. And, and so does Franklin Graham. Franklin doesn't believe any of that shit, but he knows how to use it and he plays along. So secular commentators just don't get it because they don't realize that Trump isn't a political figure to these guys. He's a, he is the fulfillment of a prophecy that has nothing to do with only using people of good character. Half the people in the Bible are of bad character. God uses them anyway. And he uses them for his great purposes. Once you fold your guy into that category, then Katie, bar the door. There are absolutely no limits to what you'll accept from him. And that's what the secular commentaries never understood right, about right. He had become a piece of Pentecostal, not just evangelical. Right. Pentecostal, signs and wonders, craziness, tongues and you know speaking, uh, a manifestation of God's will on earth. The minute you go to that, you're in a cult. And you are in something that is unquestionably... Um, off the chart, and you can't question it anymore. And so those guys don't accept the election result. How could they? God ordained him to be president, so of course he's still president. They don't accept democracy. How could they? Because Pentecostal evangelical Christians don't win all the time, or people sympathetic to them like Trump are using them like Trump. So from now on, we're not even going to believe that elections are sacrosanct. We're just going to believe our mission on earth to bring it back to God is sacrosanct. And if it takes turning into an authoritarian dictatorship, so be it. And then Putin comes along and they fold him into the same category. He's helping bring white white Christian Western culture back to God. Why? Because he's, you know, upholding democracy? Absolutely not. Because he's, he's smashing gay rights. He's having pussy riot whipped in the street by Cossacks with bullwhips. He's got, you know, all his opposition are in jail. Um, he talks about, you know, the secularization process and how he wants to support the Orthodox Church. So when you look at this, 
you know, in a way you could make an excuse for the old line evangelicals and say, well, they lost the battle against their, their own crazy fringe. They should have stood up against them. But now that battle is lost. You can hardly blame the Billy Graham Wheaton College Christianity Day wing of the evangelical movement for this. You can say they, they were deficient in a lot of ways, but this is not on their watch. This is the Pentecostal speak in tongues holiness movement taking over evangelical Christianity and turning it into something completely different. And it's all scary as shit. Well, it is, it is, you know, and, you know, and the, the more you dig into some of the theology of these guys, it's, it's interesting to me, depending on where you land on the spectrum, you define someone like a figure like Trump differently, you know? So for the, uh, for some, he's, they're, they're very pragmatic about it. He's, he's, they, ideologically, they may not differ, they may differ with him, but from a pragmatic point of view, uh, he's furthering their goals, so so be it. It doesn't matter to them; they're cozying up to the devil. Right? Um, it could be a devil that's actually going to help you, you know. And, and again, this whole hastening the end times thing is—it cracks me up. Um, that's—I don't know if you know who Mike Bickle is, but he's the sure um, the pastor out of you know in Kansas City at the at the at the, which I think is hilarious. The International House of Pancakes, no, the International yeah. House of Prayer. He's at the IHOP in Kansas City, but that's their stated mission. That's why they pray 24 hours a day. That's why that facility is open. Bring and they're Jesus training people up. Is there, yeah, they're, 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 they're praying in, they're ushering in the end times. Yeah. And of course, weird little footnote to all this. They're all Christian Zionists who think that, you know, Israel has to be defended. But of course, when you dig just a little deeper, the end times are praying in means that all the Jews in the world, except 144,000 of them are going to be massacred. Right. right. And, and those 144,000 are going to have forced conversions to Christianity. So, uh, you know, your Israeli who's grateful for American evangelical support had better read the fine print. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> you do realize they're going to kill you. Yeah. yeah under all this, you know, that, yeah, you know, and guys like that are the ones who will who will claim that this this Jesus, who is the proclaimed, you know, Prince of Peace, will come back and personally slaughter people by the tens of thousands or, uh, you know. Well, and Pat Robertson came out of retirement a, few, a little while ago after Putin attacked Ukraine to say that this was all part of God's great plan at the end and the great Gog and Magog were coming out of the north. They're going to attack Israel and, you know, sit there and rub your hands if they get nuked. I mean, this is insanity. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, it's also fundamental. The crazy thing is, I know, again, secular leader listeners would say, what the hell is he talking about here? Right. Um, you know, the most anti-Semitic part of the United States is the millions and millions of evangelicals who believe that the right thing to happen is that Jews are massacred in a way that would make the Holocaust look like a Sunday school picnic. Yeah, because that's their vision of a fulfillment of prophecy. That's what they're praying, praying for, and and there's no way to dodge that. That's the prophecy. And every time Pat Robertson opens his mouth, I wish he'd just go back into retirement. Like that dude, he's batshit crazy. Well, you know, I mean, it's in a way, it's sort of fun, and it's sort of a way, you know, it's it, but it's like having a demented Yoda show up and. You need to make a Mel Brooks style film. Where you should do that. The Pat Robertson character kind of roll up, and it's it's funny but horrifying. Hey, as my father once said about Pat Robertson, as he walked out of the studio, having been on the show because he thought we ought to go in there to talk about abortion, but with fear and loathing, he said, "Listen." The sad thing about Pat Robertson is not what he says. It's that anybody sends him money. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they did by the truckload. Well, you know, they, they still turned, do they by the truckload. him and his I mean. son into billionaires, literally, who wound up owning a diamond mine in, in South Africa. So, you know, so much for humble evangelical beginnings. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that, that's a, that's another story altogether. But 
Hey, uh, on a, on a fun note, let's talk about filmmaking. I, I I wasn't aware actually until until we started. Yeah, well, you know, my own filmmaking career is weird because I made made maybe twenty five hours of documentaries with my dad as a young filmmaker. Then cut all the god bits out of my reels. Went to Hollywood once I left the, the evangelical world. Qualified for nothing, by the way, except to be my dad's sidekick. I mean, weird, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and got to Hollywood and my, you know, I knew how to move a camera and, and the work was good enough so that I got an agent. And then I directed four Hollywood films in the 1980s, uh, one in 85 and my last one in 1990. But they were all, you know, kind of slasher, horror, any job I could get scripts, four of them. Um, nothing I'd pay to go see, but it was a living, as they say. <laughs> I don't know whether I wasn't good enough at it or didn't get the breaks of the scripts, but then my wife was saying, you know, you're so pissed off with these projects you're making. Why, instead of doing all these shitty scripts, why don't you write your own script based on what you tell the kids around our kitchen table about the, the weird childhood you had? And so I did, but then it never got made into a movie, but Portofino became a novel and became very successful. And I got welcomed into the, into the community of serious novelists and nonfiction writers and, never look back. I've never earned as much money as I did in the evangelical world. Hollywood comes second and third, as anybody knows, who's a working writer. Uh, you know, I've <laughs> yeah, had a distant third, right? college speaking tours and all the rest. Ha, you know, the, the most ironic thing I've ever heard in my life is getting furious emails from evangelicals who say, the only reason that you turned secular and, and denied faith is, is because you wanted to earn, you know, the big bucks as an author. And I'm thinking, I wonder what world they're in. And I, I, I shit you not, there was more money on the book table at the end of each of our seminars in places like the Dallas Coliseum, where we had 26,000 people all shelling out for every book we had and everything being rapid copied onto cassette tapes and everything else. There was more money on that table at the end of any given evening. I'm not kidding you. Then after I left evangelicalism, I earned in any given 10 years. Mm. Okay, because I was, you know, in other words, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars as opposed to, you know, squeezing out a living as a writer uh, and, and so forth. So, you know, if the money had been, I may be out of my mind, but no one who knows anything about being a fiction and nonfiction writer in the regular market, not the big inflated evangelical market where people are buying your book because of the name Schaefer as groupies, but where those people now all hate you and you're having to actually make your living selling books to real readers who actually know what a book looks like. Right. <laughs> you know, and are going to judge you like any other writer and who've never heard of your parents and saying, well, what the hell are you, you know, why are you writing about this shit? Who cares about this? You know, so making your way, you know, if I'm proud of anything career-wise, it's not the movies. I did what I could and I'm glad I got a chance. And it's not everything I've written as if it's some sort of great thing. But the slog of doing 15 books in the regular market with no special attachment of name recognition or nepotism and having been able to piece a living together, raise three kids, take care of my grandchildren, uh, that's something that is worth mentioning only from the point of view that I stuck with it because that's not the easy road. I was on the easy road when it came to money and I got off and uh, never got back on again for the last... 30-some years, to wit, um, the book that just came out recently, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, has a lot of this story we've been talking about in it by way of explanation of how I got to this, but it really is an attempt, a kind of a mea culpa to say, look, we were selling fake family values, let me talk about real ones, and level my criticism at both the secular world of business and corporate America and 
the Christian community from which I come, and say that both have totally missed the mark because both agree on one thing. Even Pentecostal Christians agree on this. So this, here's something that Trump and you know the, the, the corporate leaders in Wall Street could all agree on, and that is we all define ourselves by career title, what we earn, and how much power we have over others. And uh, my book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, argues something totally differently. And that is that it's not all about the survival of the fittest in this kind of sharp elbows world of business and career definition. It's, it's about something totally different. And this has evolutionary scientific chops, by the way. And that is the survival of the friendliest. Because really, the only reason we're here is we all cooperate. And so sure, there's rape and murder and pillage and Putin and Hitler and Stalin and all the rest of this and Trump. But if everybody had always behaved that way, Nat, you and, and John and me would not be sitting here talking. We're, we're only here. The human race only survived because what has overridden all the collective falling down and evil and mal, malfeasance has been this collective will to cooperate in community. And, and so when the secular world raises child after child with no spiritual dynamic whatsoever, sending them out into an educational system that says, you know, um, the, the, the reason you're here is to cut this wide swath through the business world, start a, do a startup, become a billionaire. Our icons are, you know, have their own spaceships. Define yourself by how clever you are in that market rather than saying, look, as I do in my book, you evolved as a caregiver. You evolved to need other people. If you put yourself on a path to loneliness, if you put yourself on a path defined by your career title, you will be sorry. Take that as, as, as something that I am certain about as age 70, looking back on my own life. And so the book really has three threads to it. It has my own childcare thread of being the primary caregiver for three of my youngest five grandchildren for the last 13 years. And I don't mean just getting my wife to do the work and taking the credit. I mean, actually, she and I doing this 50-50 for 13 years, taking care of these kids. Secondly, it's an examination of why has this given me more pleasure than anything I've ever done career-wise, whether in the film business or writing or anything else. And the third thing is that it sent me on a kind of a scientific journey of discovery that took six years of reading how is it that in our evolutionary history, we evolved to be caregivers rather than uh, people who first seek power over others, money, and title? So, you know, when you look, for instance, at the, at the statistics that I cited in my book about loneliness in the U.S. and how it's exponentially exploded in terms of all the, the studies of, of loneliness compared to past studies, or if you look at the whole issue of fertility where you have people freezing their eggs because they put all their careers ahead of everything. So now they butt up against the age 40 and somebody suddenly wants to have a child. Now what do we do? If you look at these kind of markers, our culture has clearly gone off the rails. You know, where was the childcare for women during the time they had COVID? Why are so many fathers quitting jobs and insisting on working from home now, having tried it for a year because they were forced to in COVID and suddenly they wake up and say, well, wait, wait a minute fuck this, I'm not going back to uh, my job in the, in the city. You either, you either let me work from home four days a week, five days a week, or I quit because I discovered that I really don't want to just follow this high-powered career path. So, you know, the book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, is a genuine pro-family message. But one of the pro-family elements of it is that when I talk about fall in love, I'm not talking about just romantic love. I mean, Fall in love with the idea of love itself as an actual thing, whether you're pair bonded or have children or gay, straight, 
non-binary isn't the point. Have children. You know, I'm not being cute now when I say today, John and Nat, you're my parents in the sense that you are giving me a chance to express myself. I'm like a kid who's done this new book, this drawing. I've, I've just scribbled this little drawing called Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet. You're not throwing it in a trash can. You're sticking it up on your bullet board or you're putting it on the refrigerator with a with an alphabet magnet saying, hey, good job. I'll let, yeah, so let's talk about what you just did here. So, and I'm on your podcast here. I'm your caregiver too, because I'm giving you my best shot today. I'm saying, I honor what you're doing uh, John and that, and, and I'm not just saying, Hey, I don't have time for this. I'm going to talk to you for an hour. I'm going to give you the best answers I can because that's how we care for each other. It's a, it's a different version of being in line in a supermarket and somebody in front of you doesn't have the money to pay for the diapers they need. And you just pull your wallet out and say, I have the money today. Here, I'll pay for it. No big deal. Um, that's what human beings are about. So, you know, do we all want a corner office? Do we all need to break glass ceilings if we're a woman? Do we all lust for that corporate job? Fine, go get the work. But if you think that's going to make you a happy, joyful person when you're Frank Schaefer's age, age 70, take a word from this guy a little further down the trail than you, get your shit together, and realize that if your whole life is dedicated to pushing your human relationships to the side so you can follow this big, acquisitive, high-powered career, you will be sad. You will wind up alone. Last point. After I wrote the book, because otherwise I would have put this in my book, a, a title was published a few months ago, and here's the title. And it really, I mean, talk about like a marker that should tell you what the fuck is wrong with this culture, that this even needs to be written by a serious person. The title of the book is How Not to Die Alone. Okay, so so many people are unattached. And I'm not just talking about marriage or tradition. I mean unattached. You know, young people not having sex anymore because they're so turned off because of, of the modern porn industry that's the first introduction to sex they have. Uh, so many people who just give up on relationships or delay it because they've been told have a career first. You know, when you look at the whole picture, so many people are turned off to the kind of connections that are sustaining that we got a book, How Not to Die Alone. And it's like paint by numbers. Get to know people. Try to have conversations. If you're in an elevator, speak to the person next to you. Don't just do it on a dating app. It's like, duh. We have to be told to, to say hi to your neighbor. If someone is walking a dog and you are walking your dog, ask them how their dog is. I mean, seriously. So what the fuck, man? You know, I mean, if you're from another planet, you would just be saying, these are like pandas. You know, they only eat bamboo, they only eat bamboo shoots and they mate for four minutes every spring. They're going to die off. I don't care how many natural preserves we give them. This is a doomed species. If right. you have to write a book saying, you know, make eye contact, talk to people. So, you know, I don't want to joke about loneliness, but it is ridiculous that you've got these educated women and men who come out of these high-powered universities and at age 40, suddenly they say, oh shit, we better freeze our eggs. You know, right. I'm so busy becoming vice president of, of Microsoft that I don't have time to have children right now, but hey, what happens if we ever want to? Okay, this, this way lies madness. Something's clearly off the rails. So I wrote a book from the perspective of a father, grandfather, caregiver, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, is not calling people back to quote-unquote traditional marriage or relationships necessarily, although there's nothing wrong with a lot of those good old traditional marriages compared to the loneliness epidemic we're in now. Let's quickly say that. But it's calling people to put love first in their life, 
have children in the same set of biologically, sure, if you want them, nothing wrong with not having kids. But if you don't have children, you still have children in the sense that you are a caregiver of everybody. And you want people to give you care. And then stay put. You know, don't think you've got to keep moving for jobs and more money, more money, more money. Save the planet, obviously, is the result of being in love with love instead of commerce. Having children in the sense of looking at everybody as someone you can be a caregiver to and looking for care from people. Um, staying put, not, not always going over the, after the next big deal. And then the, the most ironic part about the be happy part, which is the conclusion my book draws, is that the more you try to be happy, the less happy you will be. The more you try to make other ha- people happy and forget about yourself for a while, the happier will, you will be. And this isn't because Jesus said so. This is because science says so. Neuropsychology says so. All the studies of how long people are happy when they give a gift to someone rather than receive something say so. So, you know, they've done these things where you've always wanted an SL300 Mercedes. You've always wanted this antique car. You finally save up to $180,000 and buy one. You know, that pleasure that they've studied lasts for about three weeks, and then it starts fading. You pay for the groceries and the diapers of somebody who's broken a line ahead of you. And even if they're a con artist and the whole thing's a setup, you can think back on that three years from then, seriously, when you're having suicidal thoughts and life doesn't feel worthwhile. If you can remember that one kind thing you did, it will pull you out of a depression faster than a Valium will. So, and this is science. This isn't like, oh, touchy-feely, Oprah-esque. Hallmark greeting card shit. This is real. So that, that's, that's what Fall in Love, Have Children Save, Put Save the Planet's about. I think it's, it's uh, probably my best book in the sense that it reflects what I care most about, which is my family and personal connections with people. And um, it also sort of brings folks who have followed my work up to date on where my head is at, which is, hey, listen, it's not about truth in the sense of like, you got to believe right and go to heaven. It's about, hey, how about we just start by doing the dishes so that uh, my my partner doesn't have to? How about I just start by giving my kid undivided attention instead of multitasking on some fucking cell phone when I'm with my granddaughter? Let's get basic here. You're, no, man, I, I love it. I can't wait to, I, I admittedly have not read it. but I it, no it, it just came out. It, it is in my Amazon cart right now. Good. Um, and I'm, I'm super stoked to read it. And everything and, you're and saying. I, and I'm very shameless about saying to people, if you're interested in what I'm saying, please buy the book because A, I earn my living this way, but B, this is a really good book. It's, yeah. it, will, it will change the way you see no. yourself and, and, and we will, we will likewise shamelessly promote it as well. Please do. Um, because, uh, everything you're saying, so to give you a tiny bit of hope as a guy who's about 20 years younger than you, this is what I'm saying in my church from the pulpit every Sunday. Speaking like, of which, by the way, if you have a church that has any kind of a semblance of a book club and you want me to come on and do a thing with you guys, Ooh, you know, I, I consider a book club one or more people. And if it's just your mother-in-law, that's fine. You know what? I may take you up on that. I, 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 I've done it once before. I'll, I will do it again. Um, and my, my, the people in my church would, would, would love you, man. They would, they would, yeah, if they buy a couple of copies and you invite me to do a thing and, you know, zoom it in and all the rest, I'll be there in a heartbeat. That would be fantastic, man. No fee, by the way. It's a book club. I don't charge for book clubs. Well, that's even better, man. So seriously, no, but what we have focused in so much on as, as a small, and we're a very small church, you know, and and, and, in in a lot of ways, purposefully so, you know, because the, I, I've been part, like you have, of, of large church organizations yeah. and turned off by the commercial aspects of it all and how, how and the nepotism. I, as soon as you said that, I'm like, yeah, exactly. This you has been it. my experience, you know, 
40 years in the evangelical church of, yeah. of watching everyone sort of like, you know, just provide for their families and their kids and their grandkids. And everyone's going to just come up and take the reins. But, um, but anyway, we've, we've, we've just begun to sort of talk about how do we prioritize loving each other? How do we step out of these four walls, walk into the world and actually have positive you know, contact with people. Well, that's um, my and, book and it starts yeah, at home. And just, that's great. You know, all I want to tell you is that you can approach this two ways, you know, what the Bible says, okay, fine. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus says, be nice to people. Good, good for you. But the, the weird thing is, is that because I got into this study based on the fact that I have some friends who teach various science subjects, um, like neurobiology on, at the university level, I sent them my book and they said, look, it's great. I'm, we're glad for these nice stories about your grandchildren, but you understand that modern science totally backs up what you're saying in terms of where people find real joy. Why don't you take some time and actually do some reading here? And uh, here's the homework. Here's three books by this guy. Here's a paper by these people on have you thought of this. And so all of a sudden it became a six-year project. And what blew my mind, having been raised as an evangelical, partly homeschooled, I knew nothing about evolutionary psychology. And the whole field has changed. But this whole thing I said about it's not about the survival of the fittest, but the survival of the friendliest. This isn't a wish list of a former evangelical who wants Jesus-y. This is where the cutting edge of modern science is today, that they are saying, we got it all wrong. It wasn't the survival of the fittest. It was the survival of the friendliest. It's all about cooperation. The only reason hunter-gatherers passed anything down is because they learned to cooperate. If the strong had taken all the food from the weak, nobody would survive. Who feeds the mother when she's feeding the baby? All these questions. What is parenthood? Studies on love. Uh, you know, um, Ruth Feldman, this incredible scholar for the last 25 years, has been studying the neurobiology and the chemistry of love found out that, you know, she studied, she wanted to do biological and, and brain chemistry and, and, and uh, studies of, of, of mothers with newborn babies. And so she was taking saliva samples from moms who were breastfeeding babies and figuring out the levels of oxytocin and various hormones in their blood that change and what's the real anatomy of love. And as a control, she took samples of saliva from fathers who were also attached to their children, not breastfeeding, but, but taking care of them. And she found the level of hormonal change was identical. And then she decided, okay, we'll do a real control. Let's take the same thing from fathers who are engaged with children that they have adopted in gay marriages. Surely that'll be different. Nope. If the father was engaged, he had the same hormonal changes that were as measurable as a woman breastfeeding a child. Now we're talking something mind-blowing and she had to change everything and everybody changed the science because they suddenly realized it had nothing to do with biology and the biological bond and had everything to do with the intensity of attention and care. Wow. Duh. Yeah. Duh. That was the deal. So well, we now have science that says... If you, you know, you will get out exactly what you put in. And, and now, and now, and that, this isn't sentimentality anymore. This is science. No, it's not. Anthropologically speaking, I remember reading something that Margaret Mead wrote um, when she was asked by a student what was the first sign that, you know, some sort of civilization amongst humans was evolving. And they expect her to say things like, you know, clay pots and tools and metal. And she said, no, it was a mended bone. Because survival of the fittest says that guy falls by the wayside, you let him die and you leave him. And all of a sudden we have evidence that at some point we started caring for each other and healing each other. And she, and like, that was deeply, deeply profound to me. 
Like that's, that's, that's when we knew we were moving towards a sustainable human race. Yeah. And when you have all these people who are out there proclaiming, and I talk about this in the book, in the tech industry, that somehow disruption is this great thing. You know, we're going to throw everything up in the air and see where it lands. Okay, fine. But what we crave is stability. We crave connection. We crave familiarity. We crave patterns. If you smash everything around you to make an extra buck, and you think that somehow it's justified because now you're a billionaire without ever saying, okay, we can do this, but should we do this? You have a nightmare. But not only that, you're going to have a lot of people wind up lonely um, because, not because it's immoral in the sense the Bible says something different, but it actually works against the evolutionary inner core of our survival instincts. So that is the point, And that's the point of my book. The fun part is that a lot of what my book confirms um, is is what a lot of the better part of Christian teaching is when it comes to how you treat people. But the reason it confirms it is because biology and evolution came long before religion. And so, of course, the reason why we connect with the sayings of Jesus, for instance, <clears throat> is not because they are remarkable, but because they actually conform to what everybody already knew because you didn't need Jesus to tell you to be that caregiver to repair the bone that you talked about, that Margaret Mead talked about. You know, you can have an illiterate society that's never heard of religion or God, but because of the fact that our basic survival method of all is caring and sharing, otherwise nobody makes it, this is already ingrained. So someone comes along and says, hey, there's a God and he wants you to do this. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense to me because that's that's what we're all doing. So when you look at this from the secular, it's an interesting thing because where my book, uh, Fallen Out of Children, Save, Save the Planet, exists, is it an intersection between what you might call biblical morality and what you might call secular evolutionary survival techniques. And where they're at their best, they totally intersect. They are one and the same. So when, when you look at the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, basically, <clears throat> you know, if evolution had a voice and a prophet, it would be saying much the same thing to the hunter-gatherer that says, look, we're a little tribe, how, how do we make it here? It would be, hey, don't leave that baby by the trail, pick her up, fix her leg, bring her with you, and pick her part of your family. That's how you do it. I love it, man. No, that's great. I am, uh, man, John, I don't know about you, but man, I'm <laughs> seriously, as, as happens often on, on, on the podcast, we're, we're, we're both a little speechless because everything is just so good. Yeah. Um, we uh, we do have to wrap this up, and I'm, yeah. I'm I'm a little bit sad to see it come to an end. Because man, well, hey, we'll do it again in your book club. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. I'm, yeah, I'm really sure. about that. You know where to reach me. I'm gonna I'm gonna order the book, and we're gonna we're gonna chew it up. And we've been looking for the next little book to dive into. So, uh, man, that I sounds like it. a I, I love that idea. So, uh, man. John, you have anything to add before we, we wrap up and say goodbye? <laughs> you always do this to me, and I'm like, no. No, no okay, I well, I will stop. <laughs> well, then, 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 then we'll back it up. It's been really great having you on the podcast, Frank. <laughs> um, seriously, man, I, it's been a very, very enjoyable yes, conversation, really and I'm, man, I'm just glad you, I'm, 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 we're honored I'm to have the time. Thanks for, uh, for, uh, for making the time for us. And uh, if you haven't already done it, you guys go out and get, uh, this new book in particular, remind me the title one more time. It's awesome. It's Yeah, I, I made it deliberately difficult for dyslexics yeah, so like me. You will never get it right. Why do you think I have it sitting next to me here? Because <laughs> well, it's right behind you too. On your, I'm looking on your door. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but I can That's see. Right. Fall, in a, yeah, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. 
and it's in bookstores everywhere, which means probably nowhere, but it will be on Amazon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We're trying our best not to promote Amazon, but at the same time, we want people to buy your books and make it as easy as possible. <laughs> Weird thing is, you know, you, you, you nobody wants to promote Amazon and the independent bookstores hate them, but they won't stock your book unless it's high on the list on Amazon. So go figure. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like, but. okay, we're not going to promote your book unless it has a lot of good reviews on Amazon. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. But, but please, <laughs> but please stop promoting Amazon. Ah, oh, goodness. <laughs> but in the meantime, um, we will uh, we will definitely shamelessly promote that book and all the Thank other you, books as do. well. Um, y'all go check these things out. Make sure and check all the show notes for links to things. Um, and if you're a member of Open Table Fellowship, and you want to read this book as a book club, uh, you know how to reach me. We'll get a hold of Frank and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have some it. fun together, man. I'll do it. So. All right. Well, much love to you both. Thanks for caring. Take care. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.